0: Teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warrior'sheart.org. We hope you have a great day. All right. Uh, Good to see you all here at Warrior's Heart this morning. Uh, several of you actually were at my house, not as guests, but mucking it out. And I think uh, Forrest and Andrew had to come in by boat that first uh, Saturday to cut out sheetrock. And I could never, ever repay you. I'm, I'm just very, very happy for your service. Many of you all have been doing that. And you know, great is your reward in heaven. That's all I can say. I had a team from Louisville that was helping. My wife was out there cleaning out closets and stuff. And you know, my wife's kind of a shoe hog like most wives are. And she was looking at all the shoes that she was having to to disperse of. And she looked at the lady from Louisville that was helping her and said, "Uh, what size do you wear? And she said, I wear a size seven. And Bonnie goes, okay, that's what these shoes are. You can have any of these shoes, all of these shoes, take them with you, please get them out of my sight. And the lady looked at her and she said, you know, as a volunteer with disaster relief, we're not allowed to accept one penny from any homeowner. We never want it to be accused that we're doing this for material gain. So uh, I I just can't thank you enough, those of you who've been out helping and doing it, and you understand uh, what I'm saying. It's a a very, very important thing. When we talk about leadership, I I know Eric kicked it off last week, uh, and I, I wanted to do something really uplifting and encouraging. I mean, everybody's tired. Everybody needs a little discouragement. I mean, encouragement, but you notice that my lesson's on discouragement, and uh, I don't know, the Lord led me to that. Last time I was here with you, I talked about Moses as a type of Christ, and how Moses was a leader, and there were so many parallels between Moses and Christ. I'm back to Moses again, Exodus 14. If you're using Explore the Bible series on Sunday morning, this is the lesson for this coming Sunday, and... uh, there was a segment out of that. There's there's really three or four lessons in the passage, but there was a segment out of that. Uh, when you think of Moses, you probably, you know, I always think of Charlton Heston, right? I, I think of the parting of the Red Sea and that great, great uh, moment there. I, I grew up in Bowlegs, Oklahoma. My dad was the pastor of First Baptist Church, Bowlegs. There wasn't a Second Baptist Church, in case you're wondering. And uh, small town, 50s atmosphere, as a preacher's kid, I was not allowed to go to movies at all, any of them. One time I remember my friend next door came up with two Coke bottles and he said, the movie theater at Seminole is allowing you in with two Coke bottles. Can you go watch some Disney cartoons? And I told my dad and he said, no son, we don't go to movies because you're supporting an industry that really is opposed to many things we're teaching. Well, that was small-town America in the 1950s, but I'll never forget the day he said, we're going to go to the movies, and my eyes perked up. I was probably seven or eight or nine, and we went to see The Ten Commandments, the very first movie I ever saw in Technicolor at the Seminole Theater, and seeing Moses stand, Charlton Heston stand before the Red Sea, and touch it with his staff and the waves. I mean, that'll, that'll be forever on my mind. And that's probably when you think of Moses, you think of that. But today's lesson is what happened right before that. I mean, before his biggest victory, he gets the most scathing criticism. And so I just want to throw this out to you that as you as a leader, uh, perhaps the thing that's going to keep you from those great victories are going to be ill-timed criticisms and discouragements to make you back off. Dr. James Kennedy in his book Evangelism Explosion, he said Satan's most effective tool against evangelism is discouragement. He makes you want to think people don't want to hear this, they're not going to allow you to speak, they're, you know, it's not going to do any good, it's not going to change anything. He said that's that's Satan. And so I would even take that a, a step further and say Satan's greatest tool against Christian work, Satan's greatest tool against leadership, Satan's greatest tool against progress is discouragement. It's critics who try to talk you out of it before you ever go to that victory, go go to that thing. Now, all of y'all are leaders in some way and place. Some of you are leaders of industry. Some of you are leaders in your home. Some of you are leaders in your life Bible study here at the church. Others... I mean, probably the weakest form of leadership is a title. Just because you get a title, that doesn't mean you're a leader. But but you're you're recognized because of skill, like a master plumber, master carpenter. You're recognized because you're willing to make a decision. I sent out a a little blurb to my team uh, uh, right before this all started. And it says, make a decision. The world of uh, the 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 streets are full of flattened squirrels who fail to make a decision. So be willing to make a decision. And if you're a, a leader, if you may or if you're willing to make decisions, you can be a leader. The, the thing that's going to block you is, is discouragement. Uh was the Lions-Giants game Sunday night football or Monday night football? Monday night football. Well, Giants are just some of the the fans, or some of the harshest critics in the world. And actually, the head coach following that game, uh, Ben McAdoo, came out against Eli Super Bowl winning Manning of the you know the Manning line, and he said, "quote uh, What was the problem? Sloppy quarterback play. We have a veteran quarterback who's played a lot of football. I expect to get the ball snapped." Well, you know, the New York media just went nuts about that and said, uh, you know, what right does this new coach have to talk about a Super Bowl-winning quarterback? And they asked Eli Manning about it. Uh, They said, is there anything about McAdoo's public criticism of you that disturbed you or made you feel you need to talk to him? And Manning said, no, it's part of being in the NFL. You can't be sensitive. And I think everybody's gotten very sensitive. Players and everybody, if someone says anything negative about you or you did something wrong, you've got a problem. You need to deal with it. Coach McAdoo and I have a great relationship. I think he understands that. I told him when he first got here, I enjoy being coached. Uh, if I screw up, let me know. I want to be coached. So we talked about things, and there are some things I've got to do better that I've, gotten, uh, that I've got to be better at. So let me just preface everything I'm going to say. I'm going to make the critics out to be the enemy here. But sometimes critics can be your friend. My former pastor, Tom Ellef, said, uh, you know, no matter how much a criticism hurts, look for a kernel of truth that's embedded in it. He said, oftentimes, even in something that's totally unfair, you'll find something that'll help you be a better leader. So look for that. So let me just preface it by saying, uh, look for that, uh, that kernel of truth uh, literally, the Israelites here, you know, they were just fresh out of slavery in Egypt. They had celebrated that, took gold, silver, and clothing from the Egyptians given to them. They were off to the promised land. They were out in the desert, and now they came up against the Red Sea, and Pharaoh changed his mind, and all of Pharaoh's armies were coming after them. And so, literally, they were between the devil and the deep blue sea. Okay, that's where they were in, in chapter 14 of Exodus. And uh, beginning in, um, uh, let's say, verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and saw the Egyptians coming after them. Then the Israelites were terrified, cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, "'Is it because there, were no, uh, there are no graves in Egypt "'that you took us here to die in the wilderness?' What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Now think about that statement for a second. Moses' whole ministry was getting them out of Egypt. His call at the burning bush was to get them out of Egypt. He had brought ten plagues down on Egypt. They had seen God's supernatural protection and power. And now they're saying, what have you done to bring us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. We want to go back to being slaves. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So the murmuring starts, and Moses is going to be plagued by that for 40 years. There are going to be murmurers. There's going to be critics. So several things I need you to understand about discouragement. Uh, You might want to put down the little acrostic halt, H-A-L-T. Halt is don't make a decision when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. And you're prone to discouragement when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Just understand, those are some special circumstances. So if you're in that situation and you're facing a major decision, halt. Don't don't go forward until you can kind of collect yourself. Hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. I'm sure at this point, Moses is all four of those, all right? He's feeling very isolated. So there's two or three things uh, I-, I would say about critics. Critics generally are motivated by fear. If you get right down to the bottom line, there's usually a fear of, you know, in this case, loss of life, but loss of position, loss of prerogative. They feel threatened in some way, um, If you analyze the complaints of the critics, oftentimes you're going to find a subtext of fear. And that's often brought about by change. Someone said that the reaction to change initially 100% of the time is negative. Now think about that from a leadership standpoint. You're trying as a leader fundamentally to take people from where they are to a preferable future either emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally, as a leader, you feel like your decisions are taking the people to a a preferable future. In Moses' case, it was to the promised land. But that's always going to involve change. Had you come this morning and this room was dark and Eric was here saying, we've lost power in this room, we're going to meet in 144, let's say, there would have been some thoughts in some of your minds of, do we still get food in 144? Is there going to be coffee in 144? How do we know the lights are going to work in 144? I mean, those kinds of things are natural with change. You need as a leader to understand that, that oftentimes when you're criticized, it's motivated by fear, and you need to analyze that fear. You need to get to the question behind the question. My dad... um, was a small town pastor in eastern Oklahoma, and uh, when he was growing up, he dropped out of school in the eighth grade and decided he was going to go make his fortune picking cotton. Uh, after a few years of picking cotton, he decided there are better ways of making a fortune, and he got into the oil industry, but uh, he, he ultimately wasn't called to, he wasn't saved until he was 38. He wasn't called to preach until he was 39, and uh, then he went back and got his GED for high school, and he went to Oklahoma Baptist and, and actually got a kind of a, an associate's degree from the college in, in biblical studies. Uh, so he was a, a really a self-taught man. The King James was really, really hard for my dad to understand. He just didn't use a lot of those words in Eastern Oklahoma. So when the Revised Standard Version came out and it was more plain English, he thought That's, that was great. And so he began to buy those by the caseload and give them out to new converts around the country. And J. Harold Smith was the pastor at First Baptist Church, Fort Smith. And he began to rail upon the Revised Standard Version as the Communist Version because in one of the passages, it changed the word, a virgin shall conceive, to a young woman shall conceive. And he said they're denying the virgin birth. Well, that radio preacher got everybody stirred up in Sequoia County, Oklahoma, And they came to my dad's house, and they were going to tar and feather him and run him out of town on a rail. And you didn't think they still did that. But in eastern Oklahoma in the 50s, they did. And uh, they had a Bible burning in the town square of, of Sallisaw, Oklahoma. And they burned all those RSV Bibles. They went around to every young convert that he had given a New Testament to, gathered them up, and burned those Bibles. What was the underlying issue fear fear of change and so as a was that discouraging to my dad yeah kind of <laughs> you know it's kind of discouraging to my mom you know Cheryl and I weren't real wild about it you know so uh it, it ended up they didn't do that the sheriff came out just a interesting sidebar the sheriff was brother-in-laws with billy uh pretty boy floyd <laughs> And so he had a lot of clout in the county, and uh, he, he broke up that party. But, but, but critics are, are usually motivated by some sort of fear. So as a leader, you've got to dissect that and find out, okay, what's motivating this? What are they afraid of? Secondly, critics are usually the first to speak up. Now, this is sad. I, I'm sure in the two million Israelites who were going to the promised land, there were a lot of God-fearing people that were on Moses' side. But in this case, they were the silent majority, okay? The ones that spoke up first were the critics. Uh, Pastor Greg and I have compared notes on this, and I think it's the case with every preacher. On Sunday morning, you preach, you feel like you've given God's word, and then email kicks in. And I mean, you may get 50 <laughs> positives, way to go, great, greatest sermon I've ever heard, but it's the one negative you know, that usually hits your box first you know, did you realize you used this word wrong? One time I'm preaching for Brother John back even before the interim, and and he called me in his office, and I'd only been here about a year, and he said, David, I got a call from a lady, and she said you used inappropriate language in your sermon Sunday. (laughs) And I said, do what? She said, yeah. She said, you said screwed up, and that's not appropriate for Sunday morning. So I went back, got the cassette tape, believe it or not, (laughs) found out, you know, Listen to the whole thing. And I said, okay, Brother John, I brought it back to him later. I said, here's the clip. And it was, many of you are scared to death of witnessing. And you think it's a matter of screwing up your courage to the sticking point and forcing yourself to do something. He goes, oh, that's the way you used it? I go, yeah, but that's not what she heard, you know. So critics are often the first ones to speak up. You know, people that are happy with what you're doing as a leader, they just pray for you, they encourage you, but the critics are going to be the first ones. Uh, they 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 complain to the Lord, but then they they went to Moses, and that's the that's the sad thing about it. The squeaky wheel oftentimes gets the grease, and so sometimes as a leader, you've got to learn to really be thick-skinned, uh, Eli Manning, if you will. Yeah, okay, I understand what you're saying. Now let's see what God wants in this situation. You can't react to every criticism uh, to change uh, what, what God is asking you to do. The third thing is that critics automatically assume the worst. Now, this whole thing about they, you took us to the wilderness to die, uh, J. Vernon McGee commented on this, are there no graves in Egypt? Think about that statement. He, he said, the great pyramids stood as monuments to the burial places in Egypt. Uh, mummies were all over the place in Egypt. The whole land was a great burying ground the children of Israel were saying, did you bring us all the way out into the wilderness to die because there was not room to bury us in Egypt? He said, the Israelites are sure they're going to be slaughtered out in the wilderness. Now, was there weight to that? Well, yeah, I mean, the army's coming at them. But think about it for a second. In verse 5, Pharaoh said, what have we done? We've released Israel from serving us. Israel was not any good to Pharaoh dead. They were slaves. They were chattel. Uh, This was like rounding up a herd of stray cows as far as he was concerned. You don't go find the herd of stray cows and kill them all. But they immediately assumed the worst. Pharaoh's here to kill us. No, Pharaoh was here to take them back and put them into bondage again. But that's not what the murmurers said. Uh, Rarely do chronic critics Take the time to research the issue or the facts, and to sit down with decision makers and logically think through the issue. It becomes a knee-jerk, worst-case look. What uh, you know? Look, 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 look! What we've gotten into. Cactus Jack uh, Cagle, the uh, county judge uh, or commissioner, was here speaking to a group of pastors a couple of weeks ago, and he said. Uh, we dealt with a variety of issues, but, but he got on this idea of of critics and he said, he said, it is just kind of amazing. He said, at this point, he said, I haven't been home. I have one change of clothes. I'm living out of my office. I've not even been able to get shoes. I'm wearing rubber boots this whole time. We've been totally concerned in rescuing people and saving lives And he said, I got a call yesterday from a state legislator who will go unnamed who was complaining because her garbage pickup wasn't on time. Critics, they they always assume bad attitudes. They assume sloppy work. They're not willing to research what's going on, really, in your world. And and that's just a part of the gig. If you're going to be a leader, you're going to have to expect that. That thing about automatically assuming the worst. Uh, I was obviously thinking a lot about the Bazaños recently with Oldine's funeral, and we went by to pray with Brother John, and Tim was there, his son, and I said, Tim, do you remember the the band you had when you were here? And he goes, oh, yeah. So he had this, like, heavy metal band, loud band. I came in 95, and one of my very first staff meetings, Tom Williams said to Brother John, said, "Uh, you know, the neighbors are complaining about Tim's band again. And Brother John said... "Uh, just offhand, he goes, are they still rehearsing over at the deaf church? And that told me all I needed to know about Tim's band. I mean, they were really, really loud. And so you can imagine you've got the deaf church, which doesn't care about the noise, but then you've got the parking lot and the neighbors are still complaining about the noise coming from the church, inside the church. So one night that church was in use and his band uh, decided to rehearse in the worship center. Now, this was back in a time when the music wars were in full bloom. Our music on Sunday morning was Gerald Ray, choir and orchestra, 9.30, 11, and 6 o'clock at night. I mean, it was one size fits all. This was a kind of a, uh, not a cafeteria. This was a blue plate special. That's what you got if you came to First Baptist. And, And so we began to introduce some contemporary music on Sunday nights with Sunday Nights Alive, Louis Giglio and Greg Mott and, and all of that. And, and that that was, that was okay as long as we kept that, that, that rock and roll music on Sunday night. Well, Tim rehearsed here on a Wednesday night. And, of course, everybody's going up and down the hall hearing this, you know, banging music. And the rumor got out full-blown before anyone came to me and said, the rumor is that that's going to be our worship band. From now on, we're firing Gerald, we're getting rid of the orchestra, and it's going to be Tim Bazzagno, 9, 30, 11, and 6. I mean, talk about assuming the worst. You know, in their minds, that was just the worst. Was that unfair? It absolutely was. But, I mean, that's part of leadership. And again, these people are not devil-possessed. They may not even be devil-inspired. But let me tell you, they are used by the devil to discourage you, the leader. I I don't care so much about people telling me I'm doing a good job or even recognizing what I'm doing. That's not a big deal. I do it as unto the Lord. But the thing that really punches my button and discourages me is when people ascribe bad motives to me and take something that I've done for good and turn it into something bad. That's my button. I'm gonna ask you in a little bit, what's your button? You've got to identify, because Satan knows, Satan knows how to discourage you the, the easiest and the most. So you've got to decide what point does Satan come against me with discouragement, and I've got to be able to recognize that, recognize the source of it, and be able to resist that. Uh, so they always always assume the worst. The, the, the uh, fourth thing, I guess, is that they, they tend to lay blame. They said to Moses, you took us to die. Well, Moses wasn't all that successful in getting them out. I mean, Pharaoh said nine times to him, no, I'm not gonna do it. God got them out of Egypt. And he said on the very front end back in chapter three, he said, God has said you're going to the promised land. Watch God's mighty power. It was God's plan, but when it push comes to shove and they're between the, the devil and the deep blue sea, they're going to lay blame at Moses' feet. Look, you know, it's kind of the Laurel and Hardy. I don't know if any of you even remember that comedy duo, but one of them would say to the other, it's another fine mess you've gotten us into. Well, that's exactly what they're saying to Moses here. And, and one of the symptoms of this is, is these critics who are seeking to lay blame are always talking about they and them. Now, when you're in a conversation and they go, what are they doing up at the church? not what are we doing at the church, that's a problem. And uh, as a leader, you, you need to address that. Uh, Pogo, the old comic strip, he said, we've met the enemy and he is us. Well, we is us. They is us. I mean, we're all in this together. So the, the, the worst kind of grumbling refuses to confront the target. Instead, the complaining goes on behind his or her back with incalculable harm. And it's been well said, if you're not part of the solution, you can become part of the problem. Now, to their credit, they cried out to God, verse 10, but then they, in a very stressful situation, I mean, put yourself in Moses' spot. He's looking at Pharaoh's army. He's looking at the Red Sea. And he knows everybody's looking at him to make a decision. He's the leader. That's the burden of leadership. Uh, Paul, uh, in giving his kind of resume, I mean, you know, shipwreck, beaten, whipped with a nine, cat of nine tails, you know, left for dead, stoned, besides the worry, the daily pressures of the church. And I always thought there's a little bit of humor in that somehow, that, you know, beating, stoned me, put me in prison, shipwrecked me, but really what's on my mind all the time is the daily pressures of the church. And so I think within leadership, it's stressful, but in times of crisis, people don't need Uh, leaders don't need fingers pointed at them saying, this is another fine mess you've gotten us into. Look what might happen. They they need prayer support and wise counsel, not blame laying. Um, the, uh, The fifth thing is that grumblers always assume they're right. Verse 12, Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. So again, no credit for getting them out of slavery. In fact, blame for taking them out of slavery. I mean, this is really turning the whole narrative on its tail. So this whole thing of we told you so is a favorite technique of critics. It's like the hypocrite who inscribed on his tombstone, I told you I was sick. I think that's attributed to W.C. Fields. They they assume the worst, and then when that bad thing happens, they're quick to step to the front and say, we told you so. Every endeavor is going to have its share of good and bad. When uh, Thomas Edison held a press conference, someone pointed out that he had failed uh, hundreds of times in his attempt to create an incandescent bulb. And he said, I don't look at them as failures. I feel like I found hundreds of ways that you don't make a light bulb. I just need to find the one way that you do. You know, Abraham Lincoln, you look at his failed elections leading up to the presidency, on and on and on. Einstein, I, I've got a letter, uh, someone wrote, uh, a graduate school wrote to Einstein rejecting his Ph.D. Theory, theory, saying this E equals MC Spare verges on fantasy, and no competent physis- uh, a physicist would ever accept it. So you look at very successful people, and there's really what we would consider a string of failures in their past, We don't remember them for the failures. We remember them because of the success. And the same with Moses and the parting of the Red Sea. The the, the last thing in this section, uh, uh, critics focus on the problem rather than God. And this is really at the heart of everything. They focus on the problem rather than God. Lee Eccles, in a book, talked about his uncle who was kind of tight-fisted and did much like the pastor And the pastor made a statement in his sermon, you can't outgive God. And so Lee Eccles' uncle decided he's just going to disprove that. And so he began to give and he told his nephew, he says, I'm going to give till it bankrupts me just to prove that preacher wrong. Well, it didn't bankrupt him. In fact, the truth of what the preacher said was actually evident in the guy's financial statement and his wealth grew as his giving grew to the point that the church elected him chairman of the Stewardship Committee. That's a little bit of irony, right? So, when you take God out of the equation, uh, you know, uh, you've got a real problem. They Focus on the problem rather than on God. So, what is your hot button with critics? What discourages you? And it, it may not be critics. It may, it may be some other area. But let's around the table, just let's answer that first question. Uh, what, uh, yeah, what brings discouragement to you? What brings discouragement to you? Let's just take about five minutes and kind of answer that around the table. Then we'll go on to our next uh, section. All right. That just simply ask the question, yes, but how? Yeah, critics bother us. Yeah, critics discourage us. But how do we overcome it? And so that's the last three points that I've got on your listening guide really quickly. And we see it right here in the passage. Uh, Moses is in a terrible situation. Uh, He faces the people head on and says in verse 13, but Moses said to the people, don't be afraid, stand firm and see the Lord's salvation. He will provide for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You must be quiet. Okay, so what do we find? Three principles, I think, for leaders here in times, um, and, and terms of overcoming discouragement. Number one is resist fear. Uh, the devil makes one look like a thousand. And so when that bad email comes into my inbox you know, I can go have a pity party. I can be the Elijah. We think of Elijah standing on Mount Carmel, defeating the prophets of Baal, but he's also the one hiding in the cave from Jezebel and and, and saying, I'm the only prophet left in all Israel. I'm all by myself. Poor me. And we can get into that mode of, look what I've done for you, Lord, and this is the thanks I get. So resist that fear. Understand the source. Ultimately, criticism, while it may contain a a grain of truth, is probably a discouragement from Satan. Again, they're not satanic, they're not devil-possessed, but unwittingly, perhaps, they're being used to discourage you. And what does discouragement, what, what does the devil want to happen? He wants you to fold your tent. He wants you to give up. If God's put a great plan in your mind, if God's put a great vision in your mind, Satan's biggest goal is to get you to give up. Dr. Kennedy, who wrote that that statement, he said, the very worst visit I ever made in my entire ministry was my first try at a home visit. And there was a whole movie made about the Like a Mighty Army, about him going into this guy that was a gold gloves boxer and had a cigar in his mouth and a beer can in his And he said, he said one of the ugliest things I've ever heard. And he said, people can really be ugly to preachers. And this guy said something really ugly to me as a young preacher. He said, come in. (laughs) So Kennedy literally went into the lion's den. You know, this guy just turned him every way but loose. And he just went out and dejected. And and he said, riding home in the car that night, he had taken a, a layperson with him and the layperson was like, wow, what just happened? And and Kennedy was thinking, all the way back to the church that night, this will never work. This will never work. I have just totally missed God's will. And that's Satan trying to just stop a great idea, which became evangelism explosion, 150 nations across the world. Stop it right there at that first visit. And so oftentimes, opposition is going to come initially in doing what you think God wants you to do, opposition, discouragement, criticism is going to be front-end loaded, if you will, because that's the easiest place to stop you. And if you give up and say, you know, I, I, it's just not worth the, the anguish to carry through with this, uh, then Satan's won. So the first thing is, fear not. God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and a sound mind. First uh, John, John says, perfect love casts out fear. So, fear is not of the Lord. Fear is of Satan. I've had to deal a lot of that with the, the flood. And Greg mentioned that five out of the last seven nights, he has nightmares about flooding. Satan is going to bring fear. So, you have to resist that. The second thing is to stand firm. Now, if you do a Google search of that, stand fast, stand firm you'll find it's one of Paul the Apostle's favorite expressions in the whole New Testament. And I can imagine, especially in the prison epistles, I can imagine him sitting there in that jail cell in Rome, whether it was under house arrest or whether it was in the the, the pit. Uh, Paul was looking at Roman soldiers all the time. And, And you see that in his description of the armor of God. He's just kind of going right down the list with the Roman soldier. And the Roman soldier standing on guard, and you know the rules. If a prisoner escapes, the the soldier dies. So the whole principle, if you will, of the Roman legion was you stand in ranks and you never retreat. If you stand in ranks and never retreat, you're going to be successful. If one soldier retreats, it exposes the flank of the left and the right. So standing firm was really Roman legionnaire military doctrine. But he says in spiritual warfare, it absolutely is right. You have to be willing to stand your ground, to stand firm. They didn't have a lot of choice at this point. Again, devil, deep blue sea. They they had to, you know, either give up or or stand. Uh, so standing firm means standing on the principles God's given you. This is not an ego thing. This is not making you look good as a leader. This is standing in those core principles that you believe as a Christian. And you've got to go back to those. You've got to go back. What did God gift me to do? What does God want me to do? How does God empower me to do it? Why did I start down this road in the first place? Whatever your leadership goal is, then you have to stand firm in that. Don't retreat. Don't be afraid. The the third is to trust the Lord. uh, Moses says, Satan, I mean, uh, the Lord will... Fight for you. Now, do you believe that? I mean, this is Christianity 101, right? Greater is it, he that's within you than he that's within the world. Um, that, that the sum of the parts are going to be, I mean, the, the whole is going to be more than the sum of the parts because the Holy Spirit is it. And so, the I, I talked to a guy one time who said he was called to foreign missions. He was working at the postal service at the time. He had a great job. He had three Preteens at home. There was just a lot going against him going into foreign missions. And so I took him out to eat with a missionary friend of mine. And uh, this guy was talking about, you know, I have this question, this question, this question, this question. And the missionary friend of mine looked at Dwayne and he said, No, there's only one question that you have Has God called you to this? That's the question you have to answer. And as a leader, you've got the same question. When you're leading people, whether it's a home relief crew or whether whether it's an LBS class on Sunday or or whatever it is, wherever God has called you to lead, you've got to ask the question, has God called me to this? Is this his plan or is this my plan? Is he directing this or am I directing this? And if God's directing this, God is not going to ask you to do. He's not going to ask out of you what he doesn't put into you we see that in Matthew 28, go into all the world, for lo, I am with you always. For every go, there's a lo. Go into all the world, lo, I'm with you always. And so when you get into these, these times of discouragement, you need to take a step back and say, okay, let's rethink this. Has God called me to this? Is this his plan? You know, I never want to be in the spot where I say, God, bless my plan. If it's not his plan, then I have no business implementing it. Is this what God wants me to do? If it is, fear not, stand firm, and see, let the the Lord work. Let's discuss that in the last 10 minutes that we've got here. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6 30 a.m. in the garden room of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. Have a great day.